0: It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small-town clinics, big-city health systems, and healthcare care professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday, and Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck.
1: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report for Monday, February 5th, 2018, just a couple of days before an anticipated federal government shutdown this Thursday. On the rack front, our lead story this morning is about EMR and rack audits. And the question is, who bears the burden and blame of regulatory noncompliance when your facility relies on non-medical software companies that create electronic medical records? Well, we'll have a complete report when Washington-based health attorney, Nicole Emanuel, joins us later in the broadcast also, on the rundown, Monitor Monday national correspondent J. Paul Spencer has a report on Medicaid managed care. It's a problem in Illinois. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of a risky business. Rack Monitor investigative reporter and New York attorney Ed Roach reports on what might be the newest potential security breach. Would you believe it could fit in the palm of your hand? Also, Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey. Well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds
0: is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. So how many weeks has it been since I've been
2: critical of CMS? Probably not too many. Now, usually it's about unclear guidance or a missing document. In fact, I could point out that CMS sent out a press release last week about the new advanced beneficiary notice for use at skilled nursing facilities, but they forgot to post the actual new ABN until the next day. But I'm not going to criticize them for that. Instead, I have to scold them for not publicizing something that they should have been shouting from the rooftops, something that one physician on Twitter called a game changer for academic medicine. Now, if you're in a health system or hospital that has no medical students at all, go ahead and daydream for the next three minutes, because this doesn't affect you. But for those of you that do have medical students, CMS issued a manual change effective March 5th, which will allow teaching physicians to use documentation by medical students. Now right now, the regulation about medical student documentation states the following. The teaching physician may not refer to a student's documentation of physical exam findings or medical decision making in his or her personal note. If the medical student documents evaluation and management services, the teaching physician must verify and redocument the history of present illness as well as perform and redocument the physical exam and medical decision making activities of the service. What does that mean? Well, much of what the medical student documents is good for their education and practice, makes perfect, and the family history, social history, and view systems documented by the student can be used by the teaching physician, but everything else is basically disregarded. The physician must repeat every element and document it all themselves. But with this change to the regulation, the teaching physician, of course, must verify all the information in the medical student's note and must perform the physical exam, and the medical decision-making, but they no longer have to redocument all of these elements. They can simply indicate in the record that they verified the medical student's documentation and, of course, make any corrections or additions that are appropriate. Now, when I shared this with one of my physician advisor buddies at a 475-bed academic medical center, she was speechless. Perhaps she was thinking about how, as an attending physician on a teaching service, she had written thousands of these notes And then they go and change the rule now that she has more administrative duties and fewer teaching responsibilities. But I think it's also because it will greatly reduce the paperwork burden of her colleagues. Now, of course, you need to determine how this will be implemented at your facility so you can get the transmittal on the handouts tab on the left side of your screen and share it with everybody in your hospital that's involved. And by the way, physician visit coding is something we've been hearing more and more about. In fact, you'll hear a lot about it in my RAC Monitor webinar this coming Thursday on hot audit topics. And you should all listen to ICD-10 Monitor tomorrow while you'll hear from several guests about the difference between medical necessity and medical decision-making.
1: And I'm back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday senior correspondent, Nancy Beckler. Good morning, Nancy.
3: Good morning, Chuck. And here we go back again with the therapy cap. As promised, I'm going to keep reporting on it until we have a resolution. Based upon the mail in my inbox from Monitor Monday um, regular listeners, there's a tremendous amount of confusion, particularly with respect to hospitals. So let me give a quick recap. The therapy cap exceptions process expired December 31st of 2017. The macro legislation that extended that exceptions process through 1231 was the same legislation that tagged on the applicability of the therapy caps to hospitals. So when the macro legislation related to the therapy caps expired, the applicability to hospitals expired by law. Um, ATRA, that legislation, added critical access hospitals to the CAP, and at the time, CMS stated it was always intended under the Balanced Budget Act of 1997 that created the CAPs, but it was only upon a retroactive review that they determined that they didn't initially issue the rules. So let's take a look at the status that CMS is doing right now. They're on a Hold process, they're processing claims on a hold and release basis. This can be found, the instructions on this, on the CMS webpage, which is called Spotlight for All Providers. It's not on any therapy page, so you'll have to go take a look at the Spotlight page. And I want to come back before we go to the poll and state that even though the law does not apply to hospitals in the CAP, CMS is asking hospitals to put the KX modifier as they are other providers because their opinion is if there is a fix, it is likely retroactive to January 1st. So go figure, we'll keep you posted. Now over to our poll. And this morning our poll is brought to us by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors. So let's go through the poll here today. And it is about the targeted probe and educate program. We'd like to just get a pulse to see what's going on with some of the CMS review programs. Check one if you've received a probe request. Check two if you've received a probe request and you've had feedback on round one and so forth. I know some of you folks have already had round one and you may be on round two or three. Or check three if you've not had a probe request and, of course, if it's not applicable to you. Any comments put in the chat box. Thanks, Chuck. We'll be back with the results of the poll a little later in the program.
1: Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday's senior correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president, CEO for Nancy Beckley & Associates. As Nancy said, we're going to have the results of this very interesting poll later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Ed Roach, J. Paul Spencer, and our special guest attorney, Nicole Emanuel. This is Monday. It's February 5th, 2018, five days in the Black History Month. And you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Expect more RAC and CERT audits this new year. That's
0: because the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services are exploring new approaches to reduce improper payments. Although the Medicare Administrative Contractors are well underway with their targeted probe and educate audits, there are still ongoing CERT and RAC audits that can cause problems for many providers. During an upcoming webcast, Dr. Ronald Hirsch will review the current hot audit topics and provide practical ways to avoid denials. Join us this Thursday, February 8th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern for this exclusive live rack Monitor webcast, The Hot Audit Topics for 2018. Learn what's targeted and how to avoid denials, featuring the very popular Dr. Ronald Hirsch. To register to attend, click on the rotating ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or call 800 252 1578, Extension 2.
1: And speaking of audits, uh, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel is standing by with news about EMR and Rack audits. Also standing by is Rack Monitor investigative reporter New York attorney Ed Roach. He's going to report. On a potential new breach, one that could fit into the palm of your hands, he's going to join us later in the broadcast. Now we check in with health care attorney David Glazer, who's reporting some risky business. David, what could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So important
4: and interesting memos continue to emerge from the Department of Justice. The latest is likely to help health care providers avoid unfair government investigations. The January 25th memo from Associate Attorney General Rachel Brand is aimed at attorneys who bring civil lawsuits on behalf of the government. Civil cases are generally handled by a different set of lawyers than those who handle criminal cases. Because these lawyers often bring actions on behalf of the government, the unit is called ACE for Affirmative Civil Enforcement. So while most ACE lawyers are talented, the name isn't because they have bested the defendants like the Red Baron. So now this memo, which you can find under the Handouts tab, instructs ace attorneys to refrain from using government guidance documents when the government is bringing a case like a False Claims Act case. Instead, the government has to focus on statutes and regulations. So what's the difference? What are real-world examples of guidance? Well, first, the Medicare manuals, all bulletins issued by MACs or QIOs, any Medical Learning Network newsletter, or anything else that isn't a statute or a regulation. This memo means that when the U.S. Attorney's Office is bringing a case, it shouldn't base its case on anything that's in the manuals, MAC guidance, or the like. Now, this doesn't render the manuals irrelevant. The manual says that the government can use guidance for what it calls proper purposes, like explaining a legal mandate, and also it can use the fact that someone read the manuals to show that the person knew of and therefore had intent to violate the law. But the text of a manual should not be used as the basis of a government lawsuit. Now, someone might argue that the memo doesn't apply in like a Medicare overpayment case before an ALJ because it's not being brought by the Department of Justice. But I would disagree. If you appeal from an ALJ decision, the next step up is the Medicare Appeals Council, and from there, it goes to district court. Once you're in court, the memo is clearly going to apply. Now, there are also government lawyers who have suggested that they're not going to apply this principle in criminal cases. That position is surprising, because as regular listeners know, we've been saying for years that government agencies are only supposed to use guidance to explain regulation, not to create new rules. You may recall my story about a case where the government asserted that you, quote, rely on information in the manuals at your own peril, unquote. Policies that don't go through proper notice and comment periods are not supposed to be binding. Now, it's true that courts have often given agencies considerable leeway in interpreting regulations. This has resulted in government manuals getting deference from the courts in some cases. There's a real possibility that this memo will begin to reverse that trend. The bottom line is that, as in the past, medical organizations accused of violating manual provisions will want to argue that the provision isn't binding. They now have a new, powerful ally in the form of the memo. This memo comes shortly after Michael Granston, the director of the Civil Fraud Division at the DOJ, issued a memo instructing U.S. attorneys to consider dismissing Meritless False Claims Act cases. Taken together, the memos may suggest that healthcare professionals will be a bit less likely to face a lengthy court battle over issues that aren't explicitly covered by a federal law or regulation. Chuck I think this memo is great. And even if it's restating what I think it's always believed, it's certainly very welcome. So that means today I have to go with a mushy ballad. As Survivor observes when they're not looking at the eye of the tiger, the search is over. You were with me all the while.
5: Now I look into your eyes I can see forever The search is over
1: Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. <laughs> that was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of, of Byron in downtown Minneapolis. By the way, you can read David's excellent report on this very important development from the Department of Justice on the homepage at rackmonitor.com. And, yes, you can fit it in the palm of your hand. And, yes, it just might be the newest potential security breach with more on Apple's announcement about its new iPhone medical records portal. Here is Ed Roach. Good morning, Ed. Hi, Chuck. It's just
6: been announced that Apple is expanding its health kit application to make it possible for a person to view their health records. According to Apple, it is strange that people routinely can see their financial information but are unable to find out about their personal health. Apple now is experimenting with Johns Hopkins Medicine and Cedar sinai to work out the bugs. The health applications being pioneered by Apple and others are making it possible for people to keep track of their body fat, monitor their hearts, link into their exercise machines, and more. The promise is that people can live more healthy lives. Already my Apple device nags me when I've been sitting at the desk for too long and reminds me to go to sleep on time and gently wakes me up after eight hours, but only on the weekends. This trend in the cyberization of personal health is only one of several major streams of innovation driven by information technology. And apart from Apple, there are others. The Amazon announcement of a giant healthcare offering promises the creation of a better system of record keeping and glittering efficiency, just like one click shopping. But like every innovation in our healthcare system, we can expect it will eventually be bogged down in the swamp of interfaces and delays and disputes and audits and litigation and a nightmare of obfuscation and obstruction that will increase costs and kill off any promised deficiencies. The basic problem is that the United States has created a vast monster of a healthcare system in which the amount of money spent on information processing probably exceeds the amount of money actually spent on patients insurance companies are eager to stopwatch the minutes a doctor spends with a patient but do they also limit the time spent on each patient by the bureaucracy part of the problem is the lack of a single unified healthcare system different hospitals different insurance companies different health plans all have variations in coverage and coding and data definitions we have created a giant tower of babel in which systems barely talk to one another and when they do, it is only after the investment of a huge effort in building translators and converters and lookup tables and all of the other paraphernalia of keeping incompatible systems working with each other. In my youth, I remember dreaming of a single unified information healthcare system for the United States. Everyone speaking the same language, all of the data compatible, files and records that remain with a person their entire life. Now, after spending years looking at Medicare processing and the giant Frankenstein system that has been created, I no longer am sure, and there's security. This is the reality. There is no secure information system. It just doesn't exist. Do you think if foreign governments can break into Sandia National Labs and download all of the technical details of America's thermonuclear weapons as they have, that your medical records are secure? Dude, it ain't going to happen. Of course, Apple is taking steps with security. All of the data is encrypted. No one has a copy anywhere, not even Apple. And the security must be good because the FBI and intelligence community have been complaining vigorously that these systems are too secure to allow their snooping. But can we believe them? As you know, spies are all liars. Cyber security remains mucky and that's not going to change.
1: Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Ed. That was rack monitor, investigator, reporter, and in New York attorney Ed Roach. Mr. Roach is the director of scientific intelligence for Barracuda LLC, New York. <music> <music> Medicare Advantage continues to be a problem for many facilities, perhaps even yours. But so does Medicaid managed care, especially for providers in the state of Illinois. With more on that developing story, here is Monitor Monday National Correspondent, Jay Paul Spencer. Good morning, Paul. Paul, what's going on in Illinois?
7: What we have is a recent audit that was conducted uh, on behalf of the Department of Healthcare and Family Services in the state of Illinois. Uh, what they were attempting to find out is some basic information about where payments are going to managed care organizations that uh, control a, a, an ever-increasing percentage of the patient population for Medicaid managed care and Medicaid in general in the state of Illinois. And what they found unfortunately was a, a, there was literally no way to track seven point one one billion dollars of payments that had been going through the system they were the agency was unable to provide data on paid claims made to uh, providers from the MCOs, the claims uh, denied by the MCOs, administrative costs, coordinated care costs, and what percentage of each uh, MCO premium uh, goes to healthcare care and quality improvement as opposed to marketing and other costs. In addition, they also have duplicate payments to the MCOs uh, of just short of $600,000 through the system. Uh, now, uh, the big concern here is that currently there's a 67% uh, cut uh, as far as the patient load with man- managed care organizations in Illinois. Thanks to gov- the Governor Bruce Rauner, uh, that percentage is expected to increase to 80%, and quite a few lawmakers, as you might expect, uh, are uh, uh, putting forward the thought that uh, if we are expanding to 80% of the Medicaid population, which equates to 2.7 million patients, uh, in the state of Illinois, uh, that there should be some controls on the data and some information that should be measured. Uh, now, quite obviously, this has uh, led to a lot of hand wringing and consternation and some uh, very uh, pointed statements from the uh, governmental agencies that run uh, the Department of Healthcare and Family Services. But uh, I asked the question if facilities are being asked about their Medicaid payments, not only from uh, the Medicaid RAC program, which is actually uh, up and running and functional in the state of Illinois, but from other auditing entities, uh, such as the State Fraud Control Unit. Uh, Is it really fair on the uh, physicians to ask them to justify their care when they can't even justify the payments from managed care organizations statewide. This is a story that we'll be keeping our eyes uh, on, and if you have any information with regard to Medicare Advantage or Medicaid managed care payments and audits to your facilities, by all means reach out to Monitor Monday and we'll share your experience. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck.
1: Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a senior healthcare consultant at Doctors Management. At the top of the broadcast, we mentioned that EMR and RAC audits pose a unique problem for providers who rely on non medical software vendors for their EMRs. Here now, reporting our lead story this morning is healthcare attorney. Nicole Emanuel. So question for you, Nicole, who takes a hit in a RAC audit when we're describing the situation between a software vendor or the facility? Who shares the blame here?
5: Good question, Chuck, and happy Monday to everybody. Compliance in the age of electronic medical records, that is an issue when it comes to RAC audit, because when you have a RAC audit and the issue is within the service note, who bears the burden of liability? the company who created the software that happens to not be regulatory compliant, or the provider whose NPI number it is? As of now, the answer is the provider whose NPI number it is. But nobody to date has challenged this. No one that I know of has brought a lawsuit against an electronic health records programmer based on the fact that their program made the provider become out of compliance. Here are some examples of noncompliance when it comes to EHR records. Number one, you can have internal inconsistencies. For example, if the EHR software defaults to, quote, patient presents without pain, then later in the service note, the provider enters, quote, patient complains of severe pain, end quote. An auditor may deny payment with respect to that service because, of inconsistency in the documentation. I promise you this happens when I was prosecuting healthcare providers at the North Carolina Attorney General's office. We looked for these inconsistencies and our auditors looked for this. A second issue, some EHR are programmed to populate information not only prospectively but retrospectively, which creates significant risk for the provider. In one case, the provider did not realize that each time a diagnostic test result was entered, this information was automatically populated prospectively as well as retrospectively. A result from a test in February 2010 was included not only in subsequent notes, but was also included in notes dating prior to the test. This also can create liability for the provider. A third issue we found in EHR programs is that programs are not customized for specialties. For example, there, there are cases where the template will include information that would rarely be relevant to the particular provider. For example, the inclusion of a review of gastrointestinal system, and the provider is a hand specialist. So there is argument that there is a legal basis for providers to bring a lawsuit against programmers or creators of these EHR programs no one's done it yet and so far the law is if it's your MPI number you're the captain of the ship you're the one who's steering the boat you're the one who's going to be liable for any sort of regulatory non-compliance but there is a legal argument that perhaps the companies need to have a little bit of burden on themselves as well these programs are expensive They're marketed as being the best, and you put a lot of money into them. So, I mean, you should be able to hold the companies accountable if, in fact, they are not regulatory compliant. The other really important thing about EHR programs and software is you need to really be cognizant of your contract. For example, regulations on the federal level change constantly. Regulations on the state level change constantly. What happens when the rules are changed and your EHR program software does not change? Again, who bears the burden? Like I said, right now, the provider does, whoever's NPI number it is. But again, there is an argument that these computer software systems need to be able to keep up with the times. You need to make sure, though, in your contract, that they have to update, they being the EHR computer software programmers, they need to update the software. You can't rely on software from 2015 when it's 2018. The rules have changed, and you've got to make sure that your contract holds them accountable for changes in regulations. Because, like I said, at the end of the day, the NPI number is what matters. Thanks, Chuck.
1: Thanks very much, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. She is a partner in the law firm of Potomac Law Group. And you can read Nicole's article on this very important issue. It's coming up this Thursday in the Rack Monarchy News. Now it's time for the results of our Monitor Money listener survey, and once again, here is Nancy Beckley.
3: And once again, thanks to our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors for sponsoring our poll this morning. We asked about the Targeted Probe and Educate program, which is a new program CMS rolled out last October. So of our listeners on the line this morning, 20% said they've received a probe request. 22% have a probe request and are busy going through the rounds of education with CMS. And the lucky ducks, 33% of our listeners this morning, have not yet received a probe request under the new targeted probe and educate. And we have likely lots of friends, about 24% listeners this morning. It was non-applicable. They're probably not providers.
1: Thanks, Nancy, very much. Interesting poll. And we want to thank our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors for making that possible. David, let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming in. We've got about three of them.
4: Uh, First one's for you, Nancy. So Linda wants to know, um, what is a probe request? Is it one of those cars Ford used to make, or just what is a probe request?
3: Oh, Oh, my goodness, Dave, you're dating yourself. Well, let's see. A probe request is when CMS has done some data analytics under their new program, and they're coming back and saying, at this MAC, in this jurisdiction, this is what we want to take a look at, so they're going to target you. And they're going to ask for you to send in via an ADR a certain amount of charts, up to 40 charts per round. So we'll actually, we should probably do a little bit of an update broadcast on that. But that's just an ADR request under the Targeted Probe and Educate program. And it'll say so on the letter you get.
4: Thanks, Nancy. Dr. Hurst, this next one is for you. Christine wants to know, what's the best practice for bundling pre-op labs prior to an inpatient surgery? If you've got labs that occur more than three days prior to the surgery, so um, in the example she gives is you attend a joint class prior to a major surgery two weeks or more before the surgery, are these charges to be held and bundled, or, you know, what happens because you've got the three-day bundling rule, what happens with that?
2: Well, first of all, for Linda... I will be talking all about probe in my webinar on Thursday. For Christine, the answer really is that three days is three days. So if something happens four days before the surgery, it's separately billable. Um, they set the rule. We get to follow it. Now, I will mention that the Office of Inspector General did propose moving that three-day rule to 10 days because they thought hospitals were gaming the system and doing stuff four days or five days or two weeks before, again, trying to avoid the bundling rule joint class, if they're doing labs, that's applicable, but a class itself would not be a billable service,
4: so be careful there. Finally, Beth wants to know, so David, what's up with all these memos? And I think that's a question mm-hmm. Beth, a lot of us have, but, you know, it's hard to know, but here's my best guess, which is we've got a Justice Department now, which is saying we've, we want to make our mark, This is we're going with some policy changes, and these are positions we're going to take, and we want to take them publicly. And justice departments can do that. You see shifts. And so it's important to remember, you know, something that's happening today, it doesn't mean it'll be true when we have another administration in some amount of time. Um, But they're saying we're looking at the rules and this is how we want to go with things. And I would have to say in these last couple of memos, I really welcome the statements. I think that they're doing a nice job of articulating principles that are fair to the industry. Chuck, those are our questions for this morning. I will turn it back to you.
1: Thanks, David, very much uh, for the questions as well as for the answers, and we thank you again. Uh, that's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you for being with us, and we want to thank our guests this morning, Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Ed Roach, Jay Paul Spencer, and our special guest, healthcare attorney, Nicole Emanuel. We thank you very much for being with us uh, this morning, and we... Hope that you'll join us this coming Thursday when Dr. Ronald Hirsch, the very popular Dr. Ronald Hirsch, presents a great webinar on audits. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for joining us.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.